welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki, and I hope you're having a great day wherever you are in the world listening to this episode. I'm very excited to have Steve Nuri on the show today. Steve, your tagline on LinkedIn says you're a chief data scientist, founder, and you share daily about AI. So it's a huge welcome, and thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Nietzsche. Um, it's great to talk about my passion, which is AI, robotic, and all those interesting stuff that um, I, I work with. It's fantastic. So you speak three languages, Arabic, English, and Persian, and by all accounts, you're an extremely capable man. So tell us a little bit about your journey, where you grew up, and, and how you landed in Australia. Yeah, I mean, actually, like, I, I guess... Um, because Persian is my uh, mother tongue and Arabic is a second language that um, a lot of people can speak in Iran. I don't feel myself to be um, very capable here. Um, but yeah, I'm from Iran, immigrated to Australia around 10 years ago. And um, my background is in software engineering. And um, by some chance, I got into data science um, um, got introduced by a friend of mine who was doing data science in um, uh, in US uh, with a, one of the large banks. And um, he, he was like, have a look, see if this is something that you would like to use in, um, in your projects that you're doing. Because I was um, at that point um, uh, a lead software engineer. And that's where I uh, kind of started my journey. So you, you talk about not being capable. Listen, anyone that can speak more than one language, that's capable already. But so you speak three. Now, the question I have to ask you on that is, which language do you think in? Because I speak two languages. And um, even after 26 years in Australia, I still revert to my mother tongue, which is Afrikaans. And um, hence, sometimes I get my words like word order wrong and I, you know, whatever. But which language do you actually think in? Yeah, I'm kind of, uh, um, I guess... Right now, after, um, you know, 10 years of staying in Australia and kind of um, trying hard, I'm kind of 50-50 between uh, my mother tongue and English. And that's just uh, uh, something I'm, I'm uh, pushing more to um, try to think in the language that I speak at that point. And the switching is just the most difficult part. Like imagine like you're um, having your family around and you're speaking with them in your own um, language and at, uh, um, uh, out of a sudden, like somebody comes and wants to speak uh, English with you and that just switching just makes it super difficult. You probably will uh, put some other words in the mix, which uh, will make both sides laugh. <laughs> Listen, I remember when I came to Australia and some of the colloquialisms that I just assumed were okay in South Africa and I said them here and um, I, I quickly found out it's not the case. So I think to all immigrants that land here in Australia, like it's um, my hat's off because um, Australia does have some like idiosyncrasies that you don't find anywhere else in the world. Yeah, 100%. That's right. So in the last two years or the last uh, year, you've started two companies, Intuitive Lab and for um, AI for Diversity, and you're the ambassador and global advisor for BioApp. Can you tell us about the companies and the work that you're doing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, first of all, I love community work. I love to um, get closer to um, communities that are interested into AI and work closely with people passionate about uh, the same topic. So that's that's kind of the 
um, major part of all I do. Uh, so I, first of all, I started um, a company about um, uh, two years ago called Hackmakers, and um, we run global hackathons um, for big corporates like Oracle, IBM, Amazon, Google, uh, Telstra, Deloitte, whatever uh, uh, brands are out there have been part of the uh, these projects um, in the last couple of months with us. Um, our, our previous uh, event was the World Innovation Day event um, in collaboration with United Nations and UNESCO with more than 4,000 participants. Um, the other projects that I'm doing is also close to the close to my heart is AI for diversity. It's a non-for-profit project um, initiative. Um, and essentially we're talking and thinking about how can we have more diversity around people that are uh, making decisions and making AI. And it's not only about gender diversity, it's race, gender, age, anything that will make AI to be more fair and um, more responsible. And the responsibility, responsibility comes from people, but um, it's a general terminology for AI to be more ethical and um, I guess more um, fair towards people. And uh, the other one that uh, uh, you mentioned is the uh, BOAP. It's a venture capital. Um, so BOAP um, wants to find Australian um, companies and startups that um, showing some sort of you know potential to grow and wants to invest and support them. Uh, so essentially, I'm um, helping them uh, to um, get access to more of these startups around um, APAC region and, and ANZ region um, through my network, and also um, I'm advising them to you know. Um, uh, to find maybe the future unicorn in AI. Uh, I'll put links of all of these um, initiatives and companies in the show notes for our audience, but you mentioned on community and um, for anyone that's not following Steve on LinkedIn, you're missing out. Um, you've reached your 30,000 um, capacity of actual contacts that you have, and you've got probably close, and I'm rounding it off to 500,000 followers. It's, it's very close to that. You're amazingly generous in your contact, um, your content that you share, and you do it almost daily. What started this journey for you? Uh, thanks, Ichiya. That's uh, that's another passion of mine. As I said, like all of them goes around the community work, and uh, it all started, I guess, around four years ago when I was um, um, lecturer at UTS teaching advanced data analytics. And my students were asking me about uh, learning materials, about um, you know pathways and uh, resources, and all those stuff that you need to um, um, you know have to you know upskill and learn more about these advanced uh, topics. And I was researching and sharing it with my students, and I thought, all right, maybe that's a good idea to share it on LinkedIn. It's a professional network; people are learning, they want to, um, you know, um, get access to these kind of resources. So let's see how it goes. And essentially, like within a couple of months, by sharing regularly these resources, I kind of got um, a lot of people reaching out to me and, and um, you know, supporting and thanking 
of um, all those efforts. And through those feedback, I found what is interesting for my audience, the people that are connected to me and the people that I would like to get connected to. So um, through these four years, I kind of got more and more closer to, to my audience. And later on, um, I kind of stopped being um, a lecturer, but I started doing other more industry work. So I started sharing more of innovations as well. So right now, uh, I guess 90% of my posts are either resources and learning, um, I guess, um, 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 learning resources or um, innovative AI projects um, or news from all over the world. And um, this is something that I'm keeping uh, constant uh, and, um, you know, making sure that uh, people understand exactly what to expect from me um, as a, um, you know, as a content. Um, you know what, working in the space that you do robotics and, um, you know, you, you're more in AI, so things change very quickly in the world. And how do you, like, how do, are you keeping in touch with us? How do you know where to find everything? Because I, I talk to a lot of my guests and I ask them the same questions. Things change very quickly and you're not just playing in the Australian um, space, you're all over, you're global. So have you got any tips and tricks that you can give our audience, like if they're not following you, which if you're not by this date, let me reiterate, please follow Steve on LinkedIn because you won't be sorry of the content that he puts out there. Yeah, no, it, it actually takes a lot of effort to, mm -hmm. um, um, you know, go through all the interesting um, uh, and latest news that are coming from literally all over the world. It takes a lot of effort, but um, probably like if you, kind of follow 20 to 30 different uh, uh, pages uh, on the web, you would have access to pretty much 90% of uh, the news that are coming. And, um, you know, um, HBR, Forbes, um, MIT um, publications, and then you, you have all these tech AI um, news and magazines that are sharing these um, latest innovations. And also, um, you know, some companies would like to share it on YouTube as well. So I would say 20 to 30 different um, um, websites. And, you know, I, I needed to do it for myself, you know, just um, as, an, as a practitioner, professional, executive, I need to be on top of the latest trends. Uh, even though I don't want to share it on LinkedIn, I, I have to know it uh, for my future uh, career, you know, um, um, pathways and what I want to do and, and where I want to upskill. So um, that was not something that I started for LinkedIn. What I'm doing on LinkedIn is just sharing my passion and what I do for my own interest. And it seems that there are lots of people that are sharing similar interests. And that's um, the easiest way to, you know, contribute to the community without uh, putting too much effort. Listen, Steve, I know how much effort this takes and how much work goes into it. On behalf of your 500,000 followers, 
a huge thank you from everyone because you simplify our lives because if I need to know everything, anything, I just go, let me go into your feed and see if you've posted something or what you've got to say about this. So, um, like, you know, I, I can't actually pay you any money, but I can I can say thank you on my podcast from my bottom of my heart. And I do actually refer you to other people, as I'm sure all your followers do. So um, I, if they all haven't all said thank you, I'm going to create a podcast or post that says this is just to say thank you to you for all the work that you do so now following on from that as though that's not enough you started a weekly newsletter artificial intelligence weekly so <laughs> tell us how that happened <laughs> yep so i i was actually um a lot of people tell me that i might have got some sort of help and support from linkedin to achieve uh what i've achieved on LinkedIn. I mean, in terms of the numbers and all those stuff, the reality is I've never got any, any help from LinkedIn um, anyway. And they never, um, you know, um, amplified any of my, um, you, you know, posts or myself, anything that you would think that would give me a boost in the numbers or help me to achieve um, higher you know, um, a visibility. So this newsletter has been available for more than a year for most of the people around the world. So if you're a content creator, you would have access to newsletter last year. Okay. I got access to newsletter literally last week, a year after it was available for content creators. And I was planning to share my, you know, um, because I don't want to, actually, um, you know, flood the um, LinkedIn with a lot of news and interest, interesting um, things from all over the world. It will be like 10 posts a day. So I was thinking maybe that's better to package it as a newsletter. And um, in that case, you would uh, be able to share more um, with the audience in a very um, concise way without um, flooding uh, their um, you know, their feet. So that was the idea last year. I was hoping I contacted LinkedIn. I, I was in there for a very long time and they got me access um, as the last person in the world. So that's, that's all fine. But what happened is when I got access, I just literally posted something on LinkedIn and said, all right, I'm going to start this uh, newsletter. And within just four days, I got 160,000 um subscribers, which was like unbelievable for myself. And literally I was shocked. Um, and at the same time, grateful and honored to, to be trusted by uh, these amazing, um, you know, connections and friends on, on LinkedIn. Um, so, so that's the idea is to um, weekly talk about the latest news and, you know, have more content um, cramped in a very small uh, you know, um, space, but you, you would be able to have a digest of whatever happened in the whole world in a very short amount of time, probably um, with a coffee during your, you know, um, um, Friday evening or maybe Saturday evening. Um, you want to see what are the articles and, and projects, interesting uh, tools and maybe features and um, even uh, some you know, great events that are coming up next week. So it kind of would cover 
all, all of this at the same time. And I'm hoping to start the um, first edition uh, in less than 48 hours. And uh, looking forward to uh, any suggestions and recommendations to, to make it better. This is the first uh, effort, so it might not be perfect. It will never be perfect, but we are hoping to improve it with um, people's um, support and feedback. Listen, you, you've been brave. You've taken the first step. That's all it takes. You know, as, as we were chatting just before we started recording, you know, you started your um, your daily postings with no, it was just for yourself that you were doing it. It's the same with my podcast. And um, it's, it gives us both pleasure what we do, but in no ways it's hugely monetized, if we can put it like, um, you know. And so for anyone thinking of getting Steve as a speaker, pay him lots of money, please, because he's got done a lot of work in the background to be the expert that he is today. Steve, I can say that for you. You can't say it yourself, but I can say that. <laughs> so you also have a, a talk show now. Now four streams on LinkedIn. Tell us about that. Um, yes, that's another one. So I um, I applied to have the um, live feature, live broadcast feature on LinkedIn five times, and I got rejected four times. So that's another interesting uh, story of mine. So I had to change my location to my birthplace to get um, approved to be a, 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 a podcaster. Um, I don't know why I had to do it, but anyway, it, it worked for me. And I got access to, to the broadcast, uh, broadcasting live on LinkedIn. That was something that I always wanted to feature some um, interesting news, individuals, and give them um, access to my followers at the same time. Um, bring some valuable insight to my followers through, um, um, you know, interaction with other um, successful professionals in, in AI and data science. So the first thing that I started was the AI career podcast, which is um, um, essentially bringing people that are um, successful as a data scientist working for some companies that are uh, pretty much um, um, far ahead of the crowd in, AI, in, in the leveraging of AI and data science like Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and um, understanding how they got there and what they're doing now. That's a question everybody wants to know. What is happening in Google? And that guy is doing it. What happened that he got successful in the interview, what is his background, what are, what are their backgrounds and what, what they're doing as, um, as a uh, you know, professional to um, upskill and stay relevant. So essentially that was very easy, um, uh, convenient, I guess, title and topic for everyone. And um, I, I had eight of them um, already I guess once a week, I try to um, bring one new interesting story. And uh, most of them are coming from, you know, very unexpected, diverse background. And you would probably think that, you know, everybody as a data scientist on Google would have a PhD from um, Stanford or, or Carnegie Mellon. And, um, and they have been doing machine learning and stats forever which is not true. So that was the main message. Uh, it, it, it got a lot of you know, attention. A lot of people kind of um, uh, felt that they got inspired by this. 
to be more brave and to, to think more about what they would love to do, even though if they don't have the exact, you know, um, cookie cutter background. Apart from this, I, I would um, love to have different streams um, uh, when I broadcast um, these, you know, on LinkedIn, different streams would be panel discussions, uh, talking to the leaders, AI leaders, and these are all having different kind of um, um, focus. The panel discussions are more of the thought leadership panel discussion about um, interesting trendy topics like um, um, responsible AI, which I had last week, the future of AI, which will be this week, and next week I'm going to have um, a very successful um, founder on my um, podcast. So um, essentially it's very difficult to have multiple per week. So I might need to delay one of these uh, you know, streams to have another one, but I will keep it consistent around these three or four topic. And I will make sure that at least once, uh, once a month I would have one of these um, in, in my um, in my podcast. So, where can the audience find it? Is it is it only on LinkedIn that you're housing it, or have you got it on another website somewhere? Yeah, unfortunately, I only have it on LinkedIn at this point. I I have got some feedback that I need to make it available outside LinkedIn as well because people might want to only to listen, or you know, they use Apple Podcasts or other ways to get access to um, uh, to the audio. Um, so just if you go to my um, LinkedIn profile, you would find um, you would find all of these uh, previous broadcasts in one article. So I'm keeping it you know as, as a repository. Uh, but if, apart from that, I'll make sure that very soon, probably in a couple of weeks, I would find a place for it. Um, so it's much easier for people. Yeah, you, you're perhaps going to have like a Steve Nury website, just yourself as an entity and just amalgamate everything that you've done and put it in there. You'll have to get someone to do it because it's going to take you days and days and days. But, um, you know, because like your entity on yourself, besides the companies that you've started. Yes, I think that's a great idea. And I would probably do it in, in this way. Yeah. So bringing it a little bit back home now to Australia, um, CSIRO has been tasked to start uh, a national AI centre. Um, by the time this talk goes out, um, they would have been like two or three months down the track. How mature do you think the Australian um, AI capabilities are in comparison to world-leading countries? And who do you think are the world-leading countries? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so... Uh, first of all, for me, the, the leading countries are the ones that are showing outcomes, all right? I, 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 don't, um, I don't care about how many AI hubs you have in the country or how many is spinning up every week around uh, the cities and every state are kind of uh, announcing their own new AI hub. It's not about the location. It's not about, um, you know, um, the numbers of uh, places and um, um, it's more about what is coming out of it. And what I can see, Australia is not one of the top ones in terms of the outcomes. And the outcomes can be, um, it is also not very easy to measure the outcomes. What I can say 
is a number of startups coming out of these uh, countries delivering something uh, valuable to um, become a global company. So uh, the top 20, I guess, countries or top 30 countries that are having unicorn startups in AI um, are, you know, US, China, UK, Israel, and um, Australia is not in top 30 of those um, startup uh, providers of the whole world. Um, you have Korea, Japan, um, Germany, a couple of um, you know, Europeans, and, and also in Asia, we, we also have you know, and, um, South Korea. But you know, unfortunately, we are not one of it. Another one would be having deep tech um, like innovations or inventions that will um, you know, be more available and, uh, and more accessible. Uh, for professionals and we be we recognize as something breakthrough so we are not generating any of those as well i mean there might be something here and there um, it's not the mainstream so most of the um, uh, deep tech innovations in ai are coming from those countries that i mentioned um, and also if you think about the number of the um i um, you know, patents and IPs that are um, registered in AI and data science and machine learning around the world, still we are not in top, we are not in top 10. So these are the outcomes that I'm looking for. Um, um, and also we have a huge shortage of, um, you know, talents and skilled engineers, professionals in Australia, um, Still, we're, we're um, you know, we need to get help um, and bring a lot of these talents from talent pools from other countries to make sure that we can be, um, uh, we, we can, you know, actually be doing what, what we want to deliver even for our companies inside Australia, like the banks or the consultancies. Um, and, um, that's one of the major problems for startups and future um, companies to find their talents. So they would, you know, they would think about um, leaving Australia for any other countries that have a better talent pool. So these are like top four reasons that I think that um, we're lagging behind at least the top 10 or top 20 countries of the world. So what do you think we could be doing currently that we aren't to change the situation? Like where is the actual problem? Is it from a government perspective that maybe this isn't taken as seriously as it should be? Or what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, that, that's the, I guess, uh, that's a billion dollar question, right? Um, it's uh, like how um, a country can um, become more prominent in terms of technology, especially AI in the world, and how um, we, we can win the race. Essentially, that's, that's what is happening. There's a race going on between these um, uh, global leaders of the world, and um, we are not in the race. Um, one of them would be probably the investment of the government, because that's, that's one of the major drivers. If you think about um, those best 
interesting innovations that changed the world in terms of technology, um, they kind of got started or initiated by the government funds. And in terms of, um, you know, basic technology like the internet or um, things like um, uh, robotics, all of this, and some of them comes from defense. Essentially, um, uh, you, you would have a lot of investment in terms of the base uh, foundation of the technology from defense. And then what happens, there will be a lot of spin-offs for the public use. Um, I think what we're, um, and I cannot just give you literally all the, the answers, because that's just a very, very complex uh, problem to solve. But essentially, government needs to step up. That's very obvious to bring a lot more investments in terms of research and in terms of funding for startups, um, universities, scale-ups, all these need, need a lot more help. Um, apart from those, I guess we need more skill, skilled um, uh, professionals in Australia. Um, the talent pool is very important. Um, money itself is not the most important factor when you don't have the right talents, the right minds, because AI is about human. They need to make the decision. They need to come up with the innovation, the, um, the collaboration and networking piece inside the country will make the right uh, environment for um, these innovations to um, um, kind of grow and even uh, to start. So we need more, more of those and uh, more appetite for risk. And that's just something across, um, I guess, the, the different sectors. So that's not just for the government. We need more appetite for risk. We always hear about um, these big um, startup hubs in the world getting funded more generously, um, quicker, easier, and um, that just helps a lot when you are, um, starting a project, you would get, um, you, you would grow faster and you would get access to uh, markets a lot quicker when you don't need to spend too much energy and effort to um, get the dollars in the bank account. I would say these are some of the major ones. Yeah, I'm just picking up on your point. You and I were both speakers at the Deacon um, AI and Future Work. And um, I focused on, um, I went from the bottom up because that's just where I'm always a, a micromanager and micro focus and talking about um, our, our kids and the future that they're going into and the emphasis that's been putting in schools on robotics, AI, coding. Um, you know, I call it like, just I call it robotics, but like how they're being prepared prepared for the world out there and I still think Australia hasn't even got that right I know they're trying but but they haven't but we are even at that most fundamental level we, we're lagging behind the rest of the world so if you talk about the skill shortage that we've got if we're not even doing it at the level of primary school high school um, you know we there are about 10,000 engineers that qualify every year in Australia um, it sounds a lot like a lot but I don't actually think it is a lot and um, 
just the again just the attitude of kids when you talk to them I know they're very street smart about phones and you know like these things and the latest app that you can do here or there but in terms of the future that they're actually going to be going into and how um, disruptive and how quickly things are going to change them I don't actually think they realize because it's actually just going to exponentially increase from where we are at the moment yep 100% agree yeah. So um, you touched earlier about one of your passions and, and um, biased AI and ethical AI. Talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on that. Um, yeah. So as I said, AI for diversity is about, um, is about bringing the diverse group to, um, to tackle these challenges, to have more ethical, responsible, fair AI for the whole society and especially the, the underrepresented groups and the ones that are um, um, marginalized probably in some countries. And also um, um, a member of the AI committee at ISO and the Standard Australia. And um, in there, we are talking and thinking about the ways that we can find the better or um, uh, develop better uh, standards in terms of having a more responsible AI, and it will be adopted by the countries and and um, corporates. So these are the ways that I'm working on this particular topic. That's another, as I said, this is something very close to my heart. Um, my panel discussion last week was about this exact topic. Um, what is happening here in the world that uh, it, it is getting a lot of attention, which is great. Um, many people and organizations are um, sharing more about responsible AI and what we need to do. There are um, ethical frameworks out there and the countries are kind of all um, uh, publishing their own um, internal uh, principles and, and frameworks around um, how to develop and um, ensure that the AI is going to be fair. Um, the problem here is that, um, first of all, countries have their own principles, ethical principles. So there's no one way of um, talking about this challenge. It's not um, similar across the board. The understanding of what is ethical in, um, you know, in China or maybe in um, US or um, a Middle Eastern country, they're they not the same thing. The other challenge is that AI is usually used globally. So although the countries have a bit of difference in terms of understanding it, uh, but it's not going to stay within their realms of the country. It's going to affect pretty much the whole world. And um, Google is used by everyone in the world and Facebook as well also WeChat. And um, so that's also something that we need to be aware of, that we need to have some sort of international understanding of these principles to make sure that we can, um, we can ensure the, um, the ethical use and responsible use of AI for everyone in the world. The other complexity, uh, I guess, for me is just, um, 
who is responsible for doing it? Who is the uh, custodian or the governance uh, piece? Because um, we have many different um, organizations around the world talking about it, right? ISO, um, UN, uh, World Economic Forum, there are lots of AI alliances in different um, part of the world, um, universities, non-for-profits, and most of them don't have any way to enforce any of this as a legal kind of uh, principle. It's mostly just uh, publishing a lot of these white papers and making it voluntary for everyone to follow, which in commercial cases, um, voluntary is not enough because that sometimes doesn't uh, incentivize or push uh, the corporates to make sure that um, you know things are uh, being addressed appropriately. That's why we hear you know here and there these corporates are um, having some sort of stories about um, unethical use use of AI. And you know, Facebook recently had one of them, I and mean, they pretty much have it every couple of years. And um, you know, that th these are, I guess, the the major issues that um, I think that we need to um, make it more actionable than just talking about it. It's always good to also um, make the public awareness because they, they are the ones that need to make the push. Um, to make things happen, it, it cannot just be addressed by um, elites and just having a top-down approach is not the right way to address this, this problem. Well, I suppose touching on that, if it's, if it's a um, ground, a bottom-up approach, is that most people, um, the adoption rate in Australia with robotics, and then I'll just tag on AI because, like, there's a duality there. It's, it's not great, and it, it's hugely misunderstood about, you know, robotics are going to come and take people's jobs, and, you know, it's something to be feared, and I honestly think that's, that's part of it. So, um, if we've got a ground, a bottom-up approach, people have to fight back. They, they don't even know what they're fighting because the concept scares them about AI. I mean, they don't understand if they're using their phone and they ask Siri for directions and talk to Google in the home. That, that's that's the AI in action every day that they're using. But it's it's been made out to be this this thing out there that you have to scare. It's not. It's, it's so integrated into our worlds every day. And um, talking about Facebook or Meta as it's now rebranded itself, I don't know how that's going to work because I was actually listening to a, a news bulletin yesterday as, as I was driving saying, um, you know, all Gen Xs or Ys or whatever, the youngsters, they, they're not interested in Facebook anymore and they've lost the trust in it. So I don't know how many times you can rebrand for people to start trusting you again. Um, I think there may be a, a problem there with them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like uh, for a company like Facebook with all those assets and, and uh, money, they, they can always think about ways to, um, you know, manipulate and change things to, to make sure that they, um, um, their future commercial um, goals are going to be uh, intact and in place. They, um, they have different brands on their, their portfolio. They have Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook, and a couple of other stuff. And um, it's not too difficult for them to, um, to do something to disrupt themselves. 
So in some case, it's actually brave to, to disrupt yourself when you're no longer relevant instead of, um, you know, going in the route that Yahoo went uh, when they were kind of um, not, not um, trusted or, or um, relevant um, when Google was dominating the world. Um, so these guys kind of understood that a lot earlier. But what happens is just uh, we, we need to just make sure that these rebranding is not only for the commercial use, but is also going to uh, win the trust in terms of the way that they are using our data and the way they are delivering their services. Um, the, the, um, that's, I guess, the main challenge that Facebook or Meta are going to have in the next, uh, um, I guess, couple of years to um, convince everyone that um, they, they have changed a lot in the right way and not just um, in terms of the technology. Yeah, listen, I mean, I, it's, um, I hardly use Facebook, so I'm not, uh, you know, I don't want to bash them, but if you, anyone's watched uh, Mark Zuckerberg with the congressional hearings, he's a slippery fish. Like, he's just got the answer for everything about he wasn't aware of this and he'll have to get back to you. I mean, that's absolute nonsense. So if, if the US is even struggling to take him to task with all the might of the Congress, like what hope is there for other, you know, like you just have to shake your head and go, well, if you can't even get this, pull this guy into line, how's it going to work? Yeah, I mean, essentially, um, if you listen to the to the conversations in the Congress, that's just, uh, um, I guess that's, that's a showcase of a corporate that can uh, slip through the cracks very easily. At the same time, the congressman, are kind of not very informed about the latest uh, technologies. And they're, they're just, it seems that um, uh, they're very detached from what is happening out there. And they, they, um, that's another problem. They, they cannot make someone accountable when they don't know what's going on and they ask yeah. irrelevant questions. That's the problem. You've hit it. You hit the, the nail on the head. There is they haven't got the right people asking the question. So you have the Congress then for every Congress, you have an expert sitting next to him and you go, okay, now ask him this question. Okay, now you've got the answer. Now ask him that question. Because rightly so, how can they ask questions if they 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 don't even know what they're talking about? I was I released a podcast today with Professor Jeannie Marie Patterson, and she's a professor of law in Melbourne, and AI is her speciality. And and um, talking about judges and how they have to keep up to date with um, cases coming before them um, and the homework they have to do because they're ruling on cases and they're not technical experts. So, like, this is exactly the same thing. You know, you need people who actually understand the subject matter to ask the questions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's So we, we will write to Congress and give them our opinions, Steve. That's what we shall do. <laughs> so tell me, what excites you about AI and how it's evolving and what scares you? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm mostly an optimistic person. So it just um, as, a per, as a professional that are kind of uh, in the middle of all these uh, changes and innovation happening, uh, I'm super excited about how these uh, latest, um, um, I guess, innovations in AI and, and machine learning are changing the way that we're um, living, they're changing the way that we're doing the work, they're kind of uh, making us more 
um, empowered because AI is essentially a tool that are um, making things cheaper, faster, and, and uh, more available. That's just very positive. But at the same time, when you can do things faster and cheaper and, and more available widely, um, you can also um, put it in a negative, I guess, uh, um, um, impact and, and do something um, unethical or, yeah, you know, just uh, for, for the wrong reasons, use it for the wrong, uh, wrong reasons. And um, I'm, I'm, consciously, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that um, as an um, international community, individuals and everybody, uh, humanity in general, we are going to um, somehow work together and find ways to uh, mitigate the risks of uh, leveraging AI. But I, at the same time, I know that because it's a very powerful tool, um, it would have a very um, um, huge negative impact if it is used in, in a wrong way. So I can understand that um, a lot of people are very um, um, scared of what might happen. And I've heard like people like Elon Musk are um, kind of uh, talking about the um, existential threats and um, how it, it might be the, um, the biggest challenge that humanity has faced ever. Um, but that's just something that we are not seeing right now at this point something feasible that would um, make that kind of um, um, huge threat for humanity. It might come in near future, the way that we are growing um, um, the AI capabilities. Um, it looks that it might come very soon. Um, with the notion of AGI, uh, um, AGI and um, strong AI that are more complex and maybe that are more self-aware and make decisions in in a um, in um, you know in a ways that might affect us without us being part of the the decision making loop. I I'm still um, an optimistic person about um, the way that we are going to handle it as the innovators of the technology. Look, picking up on that, I think across the world, there's so many AI ethicists out there, groups out there aware of it, it you know, writing papers on it. So it's not as though the academics and the people um, in high positions on, on pushing for it. And I think it's a bit, um, you know, if you think about the internet all those years ago when it started, and in some ways, we're only catching up with some of the things now, like legal liability, when you, you're posting stuff on the internet that you shouldn't, um, that you can now be, uh, there can be a case brought against you. And, and it took a while for the law to catch up with the technology. And I think in some ways, I'm hoping that we're not going to be in the same way of AI, that we've gone ahead and then we have to catch up. Um, so I think it's going to be up to people such as yourself um, and, and people speaking out there on a regular basis, writing papers, 
doing discussion roundtables to bring it under people's attention of, well, maybe some things you do actually have to make mandatory from the get-go now. Yeah, totally. Because um, with the impact, if it goes wrong, it will go wrong too, um, uh, too badly. And um, it's like, think about it like um, atomic bomb, but it's much more powerful, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we don't want to detonate it and see how it goes. Uh, we want to make sure that we mitigate the risk even before something goes too wrong. Yeah. And I guess the most, um, um, the most scary part of it would be um, when governments want to misuse it in the AI arm race. And that's where things get a little bit more complex because um, it would be hidden from the public because of the national security. And by the time that we would have visibility, it might be too late. Now, I have no answer for that one, Steve. <laughs> but I hear your point. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man. Um, where, where can the listeners contact you? If, they, if they're not connected on LinkedIn again, this is the third time I've mentioned it, connect with Steve, follow him and see what he posts. But um, have you got an email address if someone wants to contact you? I would probably just uh, make sure that people are connected on LinkedIn just because any email address uh, gets flooded. And uh, to be, I'm very honest with you, it's just very, very difficult for me to, um, you know, individually respond to all the emails. I'll, I'll try, I'll do my best. Uh, um, contacting and, and connecting people on the um, comments section, it's very easy. You can just comment and ask any question. Also, when I'm having podcasts, I'm answering the questions that people sh um, uh, you know, share during the event or before the, the live um, you know, um, the live broadcast. So these are the best ways, I guess, to connect and have some sort of interaction. Um, at the same time, like I'm, I'm, I'm trying my best to um, connect and help and, you know, share uh, on the larger scales. And that means that sometimes, you know, it, it, is, um, it is not feasible to have a lot of, you know, one-on-ones. Steve, I'm absolutely honored to have had you on the show today. Thank you so much for your time and for all the content that you put out. My eternal thanks. And as I've already mentioned, I'm sure from all your followers as well. So it's been an absolute delight. Um, to the listeners, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I was so excited to speak with Steve. So um, I'm sure we could go on for another two hours, but um, I know he's busy. So please do join me again next week for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.